Good morning. Um, I am so sorry that we're unable to meet together as the church today. It is with great sadness and lament uh, that we are unable to meet. And there has been a lot of work gone in this last week on behalf of ministers pleading with the government, MPs, Theresa May, others pleading with the government to reconsider the closure of churches. There's been no evidence of any sort to to say that coronavirus spreads as a result of churches being open. We've been very careful to open in a COVID secure way. So please pray with me that the government would allow us to meet. There is continued representation being made. There was a letter that 1500 of us signed. Um, there was representation made in the House of Commons. So let's continue to pray and pray on that the government would allow us to open and that we'll be able to meet together as the church. There is no substitute online for meeting together. Absolutely not. Um, we're so thankful that the word of God can go out and we'll use these mediums. But above all, let us pray that the church will be able to meet together as the church. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to read Genesis 3 verses 8 to 24. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that every word is living and comes through your hand. I do pray, Father, that we would be able to meet together very soon, even this next week, as the church. I pray that the government would allow church buildings to open for public worship. I've, Father, I thank you for the finished work of the Lord Jesus. I thank you that Jesus is truly the only hope in life and death. And because of the importance of of the message of Jesus and his wonderful gospel, I pray that the churches will be allowed to be open as of as soon as next week. Father, I pray that the government would change their mind and allow churches to be open. I do pray for those who are so seriously affected by the coronavirus, Father, and I do pray for comfort for those who've lost loved ones, and I pray for those who are sick and suffering. I do pray for the situation in the United States of America. I do pray for peace in that situation. And Father, I I pray for this morning. I pray, Father, that you'd give me the words to say through your Holy Spirit that I may speak well of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Um, after the service, I please invite you to read the link um, from Sazra about Remembrance Sunday. And please give that your full attention as we remember those who gave their lives for our freedom. Uh, Genesis 3 and verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. 
your desire shall be contrary to to your husband and but he shall rule over you and to adam he said because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which i commanded you you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return the man called his wife's name eve because she was the mother of all living and the lord god made for adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them then the lord god said behold the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And may the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. In the first seven verses of Genesis 3, we saw why Adam and Eve sinned and then by extension why we sin and the rest of the chapter is about what happened after Adam and Eve sinned and by extension what often happens after we sin we see here from chapter 1 and 2 into chapter 3 the beauty and the perfection of the garden becomes ugly and broken we see joy being replaced with sorrow, comfort with cursing, pleasure with pain, intimacy with expulsion. Whenever you experience those things in your life, and probably all of us have experienced at least some of those in this past week, sorrow, cursing, pain, alienation, We have these things because we live in a world that is experiencing the curse. This past week has been a heavy week. With the turmoil around the United States election, with the turmoil about re-entering lockdown, with, with the deep concerns about the closure of churches. And we have here in Genesis 3, an all familiar picture of the way that things now are, the way that things were not supposed to be. Notice first Adam and Eve's response when they're caught in sin, verses 7 to 13. In verse 7, the first thing they see as sinners is their own nakedness. The first thing they hear as sinners is the sound of the Lord God. And we read in in verse in verse eight uh, and they heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden in the cool of the day some commentators think this is an obvious ominous sound the call of the day as it is translated here you can look at the uh, the footnote and in the hebrew it is wind or breeze so perhaps it is the rushing sound and the breath of the Lord and they hear this and it immediately causes them 
to tremble. That is possible. But I think that the scene, at least in verse 8, is not yet screaming with judgment. Judgment is coming. But rather we have a picture of a father seeking out his wayward children. The call of the day is a good euphemism referring to the evening breeze at the time when the sun is setting. And in the hot of the ancient Near East, you have a wind, the cool of the day. And the picture is of God walking, which is a sign of relational intimacy. But they hear the sound, whatever this was like. We do not know if the fall happened the very day after they were made or if they enjoyed a period of unbroken fellowship with God and they were used to some evening walks and conversations with the Lord God. But now at the sound of the Lord walking, which I think is meant to be a description of intimacy, instead of being comforted by the footsteps of the Lord, they are now afraid and they hide themselves among the trees of the Garden of Eden. They, they hear the Lord God walking in the cool of the day and they hide themselves. And in the conversation with Adam and Eve, the Lord only asks questions. He asks four questions, perhaps trying to give them a chance to explain themselves, or maybe it is meant to be heard like a courtroom drama. And here is the prosecuting attorney with a series of questions, four of them. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? What is this you have done? Four questions to the man and to the woman. Now it is important to realize that God is not asking these questions because he doesn't know that he's in the dark and he needs to find out what has gone on. No, he is not looking for answers, but is inviting a response. What do you have to say for yourself? What kind of explanation can you offer? Now, we know that these are taken as rhetorical questions because even Adam takes it as rhetorical. Verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? It is a rhetorical question. The Lord God addresses the man singularly. Remember, Eve sinned first, but God importantly holds the man, first of all, accountable. Not to the exclusion of the woman. He will ask the woman a question as well. But the man has priority in terms of his accountability before the Lord. Romans 5 verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam is the one who was meant to be a gracious leader, who was meant to have gentle, God-given authority. He was the one. If you remember last week, he is the federal head, the representative of the human race. God speaks to Adam first. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned even more willfully. The woman is still held accountable for her sin. She is not excused. She cannot say that the devil made me do it. The woman was lied to. She was deceived. 
She should not have entered into the conversation or fallen for the deceit. But the, the man's sin is more willful, for he is standing there, meant to be the protector and the leader of his wife, and yet he takes and eats. No excuse that the serpent deceived him. The woman ate, gave to her husband, and he also ate. The Lord God addresses these three entities in reverse order of their wickedness. We saw in verses 1 to 7, it is the serpent, then Eve, and then Adam. And now God is going to speak to Adam, Eve, and the serpent. The man is held responsible in, the, in a unique way for the sin, for this sin. And we come back to that when we get to Adam's punishment later on in the chapter. We see from the man and the woman essentially two responses when they're caught in sin. And these are the two oldest responses to sin. And I think you can check your own life and see that these may still be the two most common responses to sin. And they rhyme in English. Shame, blame. These are the two human visceral responses. The oldest responses to sin are these two things. Firstly, shame. Notice in verse 7 that they are naked. They sew fig leaves together. The Lord God said, who told you that you were naked? It is not so much the physicality of it. We can be thankful that we wear clothes, but it is as an expression and even as a larger metaphor of their spiritual nakedness. That they lived in perfect intimacy and innocence with the Lord God. And now they see themselves their eyes are opened. That was part of the lie and the deceit of the devil, that God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And he was right. Of course, he was deceiving. Their eyes were opened and now they saw not an innocent world of perfection, but their own shame. Is that not what you feel when you sin? There is the objective guilt that you have offended God, but there is the shame this is why we see in the Gospels that Christ on the cross pays not only for our guilt, but also that sense of visceral shame. Why is it that the Gospel writers will go into so much detail and tell us that Jesus was spat upon, was mocked, was flogged? They twisted a crown of thorns on his head. They jeered at him. People would come and say, take yourself down from the cross some messiah you are they mercilessly mock him why did the gospel writers go into such detail because they're showing that jesus received what we know we deserve because of our sin when you sin there is a sense of being exposed found out dirty unclean everybody knows look at me i need to hide Sometimes we feel shame for things that were not our fault. Genuinely, we were victims. We were ma manipulated. We were abused. But insofar as we are guilty of sin, we continue to feel this shame, which is why scripture tells us to walk in the light as he is in the light. That is the first step to forgiveness, the first step to healing, the first step to getting on with your life. No longer hiding 
under the covers. But the other response is blame. The man blames the woman. He blames God. I only took what she gave me. You notice how they both say that. The man said the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The man blames the woman and blames God. Remember when he first saw the woman, he recognized, remember this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now the one who was a gift, he sees a fault. It was your fault, woman. You gave me the fruit. Notice you, God. I thought you were giving me a good gift, but you gave me this woman and all she did was lead me into sin. You can see Adam's way of handling his sin. Maybe it's the woman's fault. Maybe it is your fault, God, but it's not my fault. And the woman blames the serpent. We blame our children. We blame our parents. We blame our siblings. We blame stress. We blame coronavirus. We blame Boris Johnson. We blame, we blame disappointments. We blame Donald Trump. Almost any time when there is a public person, a celebrity, an athlete, a politician, sadly, even often when it is famous Christians and they give their mayor culpa, it is not really my fault. It is a recounting of all the ways that others had sinned against them or all the ways that they'd been under such great stress and anxiety and had they'd been depressed and therefore sin just kind of happened. We're always looking to blame others for our sin. And we think of ourselves and describe ourselves as passive actors in the mess of our own lives. Oh, yes, there are true victims, people who feel shame who should not. But there are many occasions where even though we are sinned against, we are still sinners. This is an absolutely critical truth that every believer needs to understand sinners can still be sufferers and sufferers can still be sinners and both of those things are true sinners can be sufferers and this gives you some compassion some humility when you see people and everything about them makes you so mad and they have mistreated you everyone even sinners even the worst sinners are at some point in their lives also sufferers. And it gives us some measure of compassion for them. But the other side is true as well, that sufferers can still be sinners. In fact, we read in Hebrews that, is, that it is in Jesus' suffering that he faced some of the most intense temptation to sin. You can be a sufferer and still a sinner. The blame game is no respecter of persons. It happens with Christians and it happens with non-Christians we see it in powerful people and in non-powerful people caught in sin and instead of saying as David said against you you only have I sinned they say I was lonely I was tired my wife cheated on me first I was mistreated by the system I was under constant attack from the media Oh, my friends, when was the last time you took full responsibility for your sin? When is the last time you said to a spouse, to a loved one, to God, it is my fault? Whatever, whatever, 
whatever extenuating circumstances, as you have heard said many times, other people may press your buttons, but they are still your buttons. Lord, this is my sin. So often our response is just the same as Adam and Eve. Shame and blame. But notice their response. Verses 14 through 19. The Lord's response. The Lord gives three speeches to the serpent, to the woman, to the man. The Lord gives a speech to the serpent. There's no dialogue with the serpent. This is one of Eve's mistakes. When Satan comes and tempts you, you do not have a conversation with him. The Lord is not having looking to have a conversation with the devil. This one, the serpent, the crafty one, the Hebrew word was a rum. Now he's going to be the cursed one, a rur. And there are three aspects of the curse. Crawling on his belly, eating of the dust, crushed by the seed of the woman. We do not know what snakes were like. Did they have feet? Were they up on their little tails? We do not know. The Bible has no interest in telling us. If you see a snake snake slithering on the ground, it is a reminder of the curse. Eating of the dust. We still have that expression, don't we? Another one bites the dust. To eat the dust is an expression of total defeat. The serpent is cursed. And notice only the serpent and the ground are cursed. You see in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Sometimes we speak far too casually of man and woman being cursed. Actually, they were never cursed. They experienced the effects of the curse. And sin has its own curse. But it is very telling that the Lord God says the ground is cursed and cursed is the serpent. But he never uses that language. Cursed are you to the man and to the woman. Oh, no, no. Blessings still remain. It is not until murder in chapter four, a sin against the image of God, the image bearer of God, that Cain will receive the divine curse. Curse to you, the serpent. And we come back to verse 15 at the end. That's the the Lord's speech to the serpent. Secondly, the woman. The expression of the curse for the woman is that there is pain in childbearing. And it's not simply the act of contractions and giving birth, but what is meant here, and you can see this even more clearly in some of the Hebrew words that are used, is the whole experience of bringing forth children. What is envisioned is that the whole pregnancy and beyond that, the experience of raising children, in pain you shall bring forth children. The experience of having children and raising children, one of God's greatest gifts and blessing, is going to be from start to finish fraught with pain. And that is part of the curse. And then you see the second half of verse 16. This is a highly debated sentence. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The words desire and rule do not have to be bad words. To desire your husband could be a good thing, a romantic desire. Rule is not necessarily a bad, not necessarily a bad thing. We see in chapter two the sense in which the man is given a certain kind of authority in this marital relationship. Adam names Eve. She is to be a helper to him. 
So desire and rule are not necessarily bad, but what seems to be in view in Genesis 3 verse 16 is a usurping kind of desire and a harsh rule, which is why the ESV says your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the fact that the husband is the head of the wife, as we see clearly in the New Testament, is before the fall. But insofar as a husband rules harshly over his wife, that is an expression of the fall. And the key to interpreting verse 16 is found in the next chapter, Genesis 4 verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. One can help interpret the other. The Lord is saying to Cain, sin is desiring to have mastery over you. And in the same way, the woman experiencing the curse of the fall desires to have mastery over her husband, but the husband will rule over her. And insofar as the husband is affected by the fall, that rule, which was meant to be gentle, kind, gracious, loving, loving leadership, becomes some kind of harsh domineering. And notice the woman experiences the fallenness of the world in her primary sphere of responsibility. What did we see in chapter 2 in the garden? In the perfect scenario in Eden were the two spheres of her responsibility. Definitely not to the exclusion of everything else, but two primary. She's to be a helper to her husband, and together with her husband they were to be fruitful and multiply. She was to be a helper to her husband, and then a mother bearing forth children. And so it is no coincidence that those two primary spheres of her responsibility are the two that are singled out as being affected by the fall. Now, of course, we try to mitigate the effects of the fall. It is not bad to take something, some medicine, so that childbirth is less painful. Nor is it wrong that husband and wife would try and love each other well so that the effects of the fall are lessened. Now, this is simply indicating the normal course of affairs. Not that everyone gets married, not that everyone who is married has children. But Genesis 3 is speaking to what would have been normative, that a woman would get married and a woman would have children. And both of these spheres of responsibility are affected by the fall. One commentator puts it this way, the woman at her worst would be nemesis to the man and the man at his worst would dominate the woman. The commands in Ephesians 5 are directed to the husband and wife at their area of fallenness. The wife's sinful temptation as a response to the fall is, want to, is, is to want to usurp the man's God-given leadership. And the singular command in Ephesians 5 to the woman is to respect your husband. And what is the man's temptation given to fallenness? It is that he would be harsh, that he would be domineering over his wife. So his singular command in Ephesians 5 is to love. Love your wife. Sacrifice for your wife as Christ did for the church. And thirdly, the speech to the man. 
the sentence, the pronouncement on Adam is the longest of the three. Part of his sin is specifically in listening to his wife in verse 17. Now, obviously, it is not that listening to a wife is wrong. It is usually a good idea. But here he listened to his wife, which led him into sin. And it is also singled out at the beginning of verse 17 because it represents an abdication of his God given responsibility to be a leader and protector of his home. He obeyed the voice of his wife instead of obeying the voice of God. And so the punishment fits the crime. He ate the fruit and now he will eat with great pain and toil. Eating is mentioned five times in these three verses, verses 17, 18 and 19. He will be punished by eating by He'll be punished for eating by being punished by what he eats, if that makes sense. No longer will get, getting food be simple, but it will require toil by the sweat of his brow. And just as the and notice just as the woman's fallenness affected her primary sphere of responsibility, Genesis 2, so the man's fallenness affects his primary sphere of responsibility, which was the ground. If you remember, he was given to till and to cultivate. And now that work will be a chore. And even though getting food for most of us is now a relatively simple task, we go to a shop and you can just wave a phone. But all of us who work, whether it is with the ground or with our hands or our minds or with words or with figures or numbers or experience that work is joyful at times but yet experiences the curse. And just as man now would have the ground not to be, first of all, his servant, but at times to be his enemy. And the man would go from dust to dust, Adam to Adamna, the ground. Each one is condemned to a permanent disadvantage in life. As we sing at Christmas, far as the cursed is found, the whole earth is subjected to futility. But the most devastating consequence for their sin, verses 20 to 24, is banishment. Even a stronger word, he drove them out, verse 24, from the garden, expelled. The garden had been infested with sin. And it is not the garden that gets uprooted, it is Adam and Eve that get expelled. It is as, as if God was saying through this symbolism, I do not remove my paradise. I do not destroy my goodness. I do not uproot my garden. I uproot you. Because of your rebellion, you are punished and banished from my presence. And again, we see this imagery, this connection with the temple and the tabernacle. Just as the cherubim guarded the east side of the garden, so the Levites guarded the east entrance to the tent of meeting. The garden is a type of a holy of holies and they're not allowed in their sin to enter into it this was the first banishment god's people removed from paradise but it was also a type of the many banishments in scripture that occur as a result of sin think of all the times in the bible where the punishment for sin is some kind of expulsion angels banished from heaven after their rebellion cain banished from the land the nations that are banished and scattered after their sin at the Tower of Babel. Unclean persons will have to go outside the camp. 
banished. In the church, excommunication is putting the unrepentant sinner outside the camp. The Israelites, after generations of sin and rebellion, were banished from the promised land, expelled to Babylon. Final judgment is where the wicked are banished to the outer darkness, where there is the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And there is a play on words here. The man was supposed to keep the garden, we read in, Gen in chapter Genesis 2, verse 15. And now the same Hebrew word is used in chapter 3, verse 24. A flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The man who was given to keep the garden is now kept out of the garden that was given as a gift to him. Chapters 1 and 2, everything is given for food except one tree. They eat of that tree and now they will eat by the sweat of their brow. And as the Mosaic law will unfold later in the Bible, they would have to distinguish between eating some animals and not others. So it's reinforcing this lesson from the garden. There is a good eating and there is a bad eating. The new heavens and the new earth will be likened unto what? A great feast. What we ruined by eating, we will one day celebrate with eating. You could draw up a whole theology of eating. You could also draw up a whole theology of trees. In chapter 1 and 2 we read about these fruit trees which are a sign of God's bountiful provision. The tree is the symbol of generosity and bounty from God but then the tree becomes the place where sin enters the world. And then what did we read about at the beginning of the section? The trees became the place where they hide. Once their sin is exposed. And then in verse 24 they are barred from the tree of life. And you could connect the dots even further. Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The tree is the place of punishment and death. Echoes of the sin. Entering the world through the tree in the garden. And yet we also know that the tree will be the place where mankind receives the gift of life. And in the new heavens and the new earth. The leaves of the trees will be for the healing of the nations. So in the midst of this chapter, where we have echoes of judgment, my friends, brothers and sisters, there are whispers of grace. And look at them as we close. Number one, whispers of grace. Life goes on. The woman, yes, there will be pain, but she will have children. The human race will continue. And though we do not have any explicit indication of Adam repenting of his sin, I do think that it is an act of Adam's faith in verse 20 that he calls his wife Eve. He had already called her Isha because she had been taken out of Ish, but now he calls her Eve because she was the mother of all living. It's an act of faith. A whisper of grace. Human life goes on. And Adam named the woman Eve because she will have a child. Second whisper of grace, the gospel, verse 15, sometimes called the first evangel, the first expression of the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There will be war between the serpent and the woman, between all those who come from the serpent. Think of the Lord Jesus in John 8, saying that your father is the father of lies, your offspring of the devil. The devil and all who follow him will be at war with the woman and her chosen seed, her offspring. So we do not battle against flesh and blood. 
Our battle is ultimately not even biological, but spiritual. There will come one from the woman, a promised seed, a promised child, a promised snake crusher. And through her seed, Eve will outlast her adversary. No, here there is a loud whisper of grace to come. The serpent will not have the last word. Thirdly, the sin covering. And then notice verse 21. We have not only the promise of a snake crusher, but we have the promise of a sin covering. In the Sabbath, day seven, God rested from all that he had made. So you might think he is not making it. He is done making things. Well, now we have the same word for made. He rested from all that he had made. And what what prompts him now to make something? Because we read that he made for Adam and for his wife garments in other words the creator will also be the savior they believed as many of us do wrongly that sin could be covered by grasping at the first things within their reach fig leaves yeah let's sew those together but no what god is teaching adam and eve and what he's teaching us is that it will only be by pain and by blood that your sin will be covered Whether it was the first sacrifice, it certainly entailed the first animal death as God made skins from an animal in the garden to cover them. Not just to cover their nakedness, but so often in the Old Testament, clothing indicates a change of status. You receive a wedding garment. You are now a priest. You receive clothing to cover you and indicate your change in status. And here God provides the covering. Fig leaves will not do. It's only by pain and only by blood. But God will make a covering for your sin. Which is why Paul will say that we are more than conquerors, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. For God has made a way. Not with an animal ultimately, but with the pain and the blood of his only begotten son. May God Bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.